coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. So as I'm pulling this thing out of the water, this, I don't know, 12-pound steelhead, this fish comes out and gets, this is two bends down from the launch we put in, gets Walter's face wet when the tail gets the mess. And he's like, and you should know something, to get his eyebrow to raise, you know, it would be like taking the leaning tower of Pisa and pushing it straight. You know, it was just, it was really a neat moment in my career to have Walt Rao go, no shit. That was Tommy Lynch sharing a great story of the Jedi Knight turning into the master. The drunken disorderly fly, Obi Walt Kenobi, and a deep dive into the streamer mindset today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you have a show topic you'd like to hear on this podcast, you can check in with me and uh, send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. Easy way to check in and just say, hey, let me know you've been hearing and enjoying the show. It's a good way to keep me going. So uh, check in, let me know if if you're listening out there and if you have an episode or a person you'd like to hear from. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, providing super superior quality products at an affordable price. Great resource for fly tying materials, tools, and accessories. Togan's also has a great YouTube channel. You can check that out right now. Just head over to YouTube and search for Togan's Fly Shop, and you will see a new fly this week that they got going, and they've always got a few different things going on. We've had a recent episode we did where we talked in, uh, we dug into some of this. So check them out right now, wetflyswing.com slash Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. We're also sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Ethan's goal when he designs your net is that you create lasting memories for a lifetime. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly right now to get started. That's S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y to support this podcast in a great local net maker. Tommy Lynch, one of the gurus of the streamer game, brings his A-game today. We discover why the barrow, above all variables, seems to be one of the important things that he looks at. We also talk about how to read water and where to put your fly. And also, how to fish super muddy water and, and on the opposite end, super clean and clear water. Ever since Kelly Gallup gave the shout out to Tommy in episode 52, I've been counting the days to let this one be released. And now the time has come. You can find Tommy at the 1884 Fly Shop in Baldwin. Check it out right now. The 1884 Fly Shop. So here he is. Tommy Lynch, take it away. How's it going, Tommy? Very well, Dave. How about you? Good, good. Thanks for uh, taking a little time today to dig into some on streamers. We've uh, your name's been popping around. I, I've had a few of these. I, I say this every once in a while. These names of people that you know I haven't connected with, but but your name's out there a lot. I, it maybe it came from Kelly Gallup. I can't remember way back, like a few years ago. But yes. you know, right and all that. But we're gonna dig into a bunch Yoda. of streamers today. Yoda, exactly. <laughs> Before we get to uh, maybe a story on Kelly and some other folks out there, tell me how you first got into fly fishing. Ooh, uh, fly fishing for me started with probably hex hatches and snagging salmon in Michigan. I mean, uh, oh yeah, 
you know, that was kind of what you did. You either snag fish, there was a few quality hatches. I mean, hoppers and streamers and and mousing hadn't really gotten a a full circle yet. I mean, there was obviously some corners of the the state that were getting tickled with all of it. But, uh, you know, when I was younger, it was basically hexes, salmon, and the, the steelhead in the spring and fall. So that was, you know... I think it was my dad that brought me up here when I was seven and he wrote in a book once that I never really came home. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But yeah. Yeah. Where'd you start out? So where where did he bring you up from? Uh, Well, I grew up uh, about uh, two and a half hours South and East of here. And my dad started bringing me up here um, with a couple of his, uh, you know, local friends down there in Milford, Michigan. And we would come up and we would, uh, you know, fish whatever, you know, seasonal engagement was, was there. And, uh, you know, we got pretty serious about some of the, you know, other venues that were going on as I came into my, you know, teens, you know, we started getting into some of the, the smaller streamers and the, and all that stuff and moving around and kind of, you know, exploring some of the rivers that we had, not to say that, uh, we're all done by any means. There's a, there's quite a few of them around here, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really nice to have your dad walk you in the door. You know what I mean? Cause you've always got a right. good station in that uh, retrospect and it's always yep. a nice place to visit in your head. So it's, it's never a hard time kind of getting back into fly fishing or starting up, um, uh, with your dad kind of being the, you know, that, yeah. that foundation thought, you know? So that's right. That's right. He was the, was he the one that, uh, like got you into kind of all the streamers and stuff like that as well, like everything? No, I think, you know, for my dad, it was, you know, the salmon and steelhead were his really big cup of tea. And uh, it wasn't until I started kind of kind of mixing in with the the local habitat up here that, you know, you start getting the whole, the, the, the full spectrum of, of flies. And, you know, with the trout thing, it is a very wide spectrum of potential. We're not stuck with throwing a streamer or, you know, this other bug, you know, per the water temperature, the neat thing about the trout fishing is, is it seemed like a book that had unlimited pages. Every time you opened it up, it seemed like there were three or four more new pages in it. And that's because every day you come to the river, it is a different, it really is. It's, it's, it's has a different flow, a different water temperature, a different time of year. It's quite likely you've never seen that river that day. And, and I've been fishing this river for well, my adult life. And, and I still can say that I, I still, you know, Velcro some knowledge at some point, each and every pass I make through it. So, wow. Yeah. So you're still learning just as much as you were, whatever, 20, 30 years ago. That's the only thing that keeps it fresh. You know what I mean? If it, it, as soon as you stop learning, I think for a lot of the folks that, you know, kind of dive deep into the whole fly fishing pool, I think the real, you know, attraction to the sport is that is that you can never get that 300 game, you know, you can never shoot, you know, that, that perfect. I mean, it's always kind of a bumping up of your existing skill level with a creative, you know, knock to it. I mean, everything we're doing these days, especially nowadays with as many people engaging the watersheds and, and with trout, you know, it's a cold water watershed and those are even more finite. So you know, having as many people engage the stream, you know, that old saying about, you know, like, you know, 99% of the fish are being caught by 1% of the people. Yeah. There, there's more truth to that now than ever. And, uh, and, and basically as you show up with more arrows in your quiver, each time you, you know, 
get your waders wet. It uh, it seems to make more sense and confuse you all at the same time in a good way. So <laughs> that's right. So that's good. So and then where are you at now exactly? Uh, I'm in. Uh, well, I'm between Baldwin and Ludington, Michigan, a town called Branch. The Pier Marquette's across the street. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I, 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 this is the home base. It's my home river. That said, I'm within the century circle, which is to say that there's a hundred trout streams within 100 miles of my house. And, uh, wow. so it makes it kind of like this, you know, and, and we've always come to terms with the idea that, you know, the big four in Michigan, you know, the manna, yeah. the Muskegon, the Asabo and the Pier Marquette have always been fair game in their you know, their ability to not only, you know, take fishing pressure, but be able to promote a business uh, based around such a watershed that can take not only the the pressures, but the the year-round hit of being fished. Because the, the Pier Marquette is a year-round fishery. We don't really have too much of an off-season, though I would argue that yeah. I avoid that river whenever I can in January. Oh, in January? Um, well, it's just cold as hell. I'd rather tie some flies and get some shit right. done. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's awesome. But yeah, nice. well, I was thinking about going through maybe kind of a. I like to maybe like a year in this, you know, the seasons, and if we have time, we'll see how it goes. But um, in the Pier Market, we talked about that man a while back. I think we talked about steelhead fishing on that uh-huh. one. But you also do you know, browns and talk about that a little bit, which species when you, throughout the year, what, what's your focus? Are you covering a bunch of different species out there on your trips? Well, you know, I do have a steelhead season that's pretty strong in the fall and the rest of the year, you could say I'm all in on the butter. It's, uh, you know, the, the steelhead in the fall is a fantastic cushion for my clients that maybe are not as proficient as we would all want to be with a fly rod. And, and in, in that respect, um, steelhead have always been a great cushion for a, I don't want to say novice or beginner or even lucky, you know, first timer. Um, mm-hmm. They can go out and catch a big trout and get a really kick-ass eat without having to go through the trials and tribulations of many moons of catching that first 30 plus inch, you know, other brown trout because those don't come easy and those are not afforded to too many lucky people so much as the guy that's willing to put his quarters in the machine at, at all hours of the day and engage the condition. I mean, I tell you, if there's something I've noticed as I've gotten older, having two kids and a wife and a business and my wife's a nurse now. And, 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 you know, so the plate is full and on top of the guiding, I'm, I'm still trying to find that, you know, 18 to 25 year old version of myself, which fished you know, six or seven days a week, save Christmas and a couple of birthdays that I would return home for. And, uh, yep. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, uh, you're doing it. You're fishing a lot of days per year. You got to be conditioned. You got to pick your, it's like, you know, last night the moon came out and it was going to be a cloudy moon, in which case I was getting my gear on, picking my battle, picking my window. And then my wife showed me that it was going to clear up and mousing under a full moon just sucks. Oh, uh, I mean, it's not that it sucks. It just, you got to put a lot more effort into the idea that the brown trout is on a surface hunt. And, uh, you know, with that, that moon, you know, you know, everybody wonders why muddy water works so good for streamers. It's the same reason the darkest of nights are the best for mousing. Um, the more that trout has an ability to sneak up on shit, the Mm. more likely he's out of the haunt and, and, and on the killing spree. It's your job to identify in anybody's individual fishery, 
you know, what that window is, you know, be it a food source, a time of day, mm-hmm. you know, I've tried plugging in the moon on trout a thousand times and outside of a spawning cycle, I can't really get there on the moon outside of it's way too bright, you know, and in yeah. the same respect, you put a cloud over that moon and now you can see what you're doing. The moon is now diffuse, turns the sky white with the clouds and you have this like almost pre-dawn light all night. All right. So you can just screw shit up because you can see what you're casting at and the trout are still dark enough to be fully invested in whatever they might find. That's right. Yeah. So that's great. Well, I want to dig into that because, uh, yeah, brown trout, obviously that's, that's a big, uh, like you said, it, it's a big thing for a lot of people want to try out if they haven't done it or they want to dial in, you know, what they have going and um, and you have a few flies. I want to talk, so I want to dig into all the tips and tricks on on kind of you know the fishing. But um, you've got one fly, right? The drunken disorderly. That's one of your patterns. Yes, sir. So talk about that because that, that's a that's a big one. That's and it maybe it's probably more than just the name, but it's got it's got a good name. It's got a funny name. Uh, talk about fly design a little bit because that's always a challenge. I think for people understanding, you know, you're behind the vice. What are you tying? So let, let's go down that road for a little bit, and then we'll take the, that fly into some fishing. So, so what what do you? If somebody's listening here and they they want to tie up some streamers, you know, what are you thinking about? What how could you help them as far as the design? How are you thinking about fly design? Well, and I'll go right back to what I was saying about you know how finite the rivers are. You know, you've got more people engaging. I mean, it's like the White River in Arkansas. You know, when we first started going down there with the big streamers, and those fish were naive to the tech. I mean, it was, it was just flat naughty what we were getting down, uh, done with some of the guides down. I mean, if, if the boat went through a, a pass without a two footer, we were doing something wrong, you know, and, and that was how it was for the first couple few years. And, you know, the last, you know, and we ended up going down there seven, eight years and we still go down there, but not as much for the streamer as the night game, just cause it's still fresh and awesome. But the, the streamer game does run its course to a certain, I mean, you have a grace period of wising fish up in a watershed and with as many people engaging right now, you've got to have flies that swim and sell. And I'd like to say, you know, Mark Sadati is, is, is certainly the root of, of most flies that are over six inches long for, for brown trout and some version or another. You know, and I can't say that I didn't fish a, a sex dungeon and a, a zoo cougar yep. like I wasn't blue in the face uh, most <laughs> of my childhood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, seeing, you know, Blaine's the, the game changer. Yeah. That t- I mean, you want to know the magic in the in the next generation of flies. It's not some hunk of freaking new material you can put behind some barbell. On. I just don't think that gets us there anymore. The sales pitch has always been very clear to me when you talk to a rapella fisherman out there who, mind you, is just fishing artificial. He is fishing a big pen with a yellow eye. And that man can go out there with a number 11 black and gold every day of the week and slay fish, which tells me that, is it the pattern color? Because if you ask him on Tuesday what he's using, it's the same thing he used on Friday. And he's still catching fish. So I've gotten away from the idea that color... And all that stuff is the big sales pitch. And I'm more against the idea that you can trigger any would-be or existing predator into that full, you know, predation as long as you're willing to kind of uh, tip them over. And I, and I say that because I really, I class up three fish in the hole. You know, you've got the holders that sit in the ditch. And that's not to say you couldn't move that fish. But typically when they're in the bottom of a hole or underneath the log jam, 
it's in a holding pattern. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll take yeah. the casting opportunity, but they're holding. The fish that we typically target when we streamer fish are the would-be predators. Those are the fish that are either sitting on the rim of the hole as it comes out of the deep, or they're right up in shallow. Typically, the shallower and faster the water is, the more aggressive you're going to find a fish. He's just burning calories. He's up there to kill shit. Um, you know, again, that depth is, is no different than a log jam in that it gives them cover and rest and they will nymph through that episode, but mm -hmm. I would certainly, I would certainly have more cheese on the inside, uh, shallow chop than for a predator that is, uh, over say taking the nymph line through the, uh, the, through a streamer cast. It just, it doesn't play as much. Gotcha. That's it. So you find, so if you're fishing that shallower stuff, faster, shallower stuff, and you've got a fish, talk about that. Take us to the river. How are you setting up for that water? If you, if you're targeting the shallower, or maybe just break down, you know, overall, like you think, you know, where those fish are, um, and how are you getting to those fish? I'd be lying if I said I wasn't paying attention over the COVID, uh, intermission to the, uh, New Zealand Mike, uh, Fisher, I think his name's Mike Fisher. He's uh -huh. Southern Latitude guy. This guy's just a trout mega man. I okay. mean, the guy caught more 10 pound trout than we could all, <laughs> you know, muster up in a snowball and throw at him. I mean, he's, he's just, he's in the Mecca, but what I have been fascinated, unlike myself, a streamer fisher who likes to probe the water. I'm, I'm always trying to beg up the hit. You know what I mean? Maybe not always aware of where that fish might be, but certainly trying to coerce him into a chase. Right. Versus a dry fly man in New Zealand who sets everything up for one cast. He'll spend 40 minutes choosing the right flies, the right persuasion of angle on approach, and then consider for a couple of minutes which way the currents are moving right above the fish before the first cast is let go. It's a completely different way to hunt the trout, but, but no different in the idea that you have to make him aware of the bug before you. Now, when you're boat fishing, I always tell people that based on the watercolor, that window is going to change. When you have high, dirty water, you'll have fish blowing up right up under your chin hmm. just because they have a strong tunnel vision first off on the bug. But number two, they can't see through the harshy syrup. So what you do is you have the predators out no different than a super dark moon where the muddy water gives them that hunt window to sneak up on stuff. Whereas like if I'm in the White River in Arkansas and they're you know, they're only, you know, feeding seven to 10,000, maybe even 13,000, you know, uh, CFS down the, the thing. And even though that sounds like a lot of water, when you've got a football field to spread it across, it gets clear and there are some flat spots. So we actually change our, our presentations to more of a saltwater, a two-handed approach where we burn the fly. We take the decision and critique away from them. Um, if you take and add speed to something that they would otherwise not consider because they can see it coming at such a distance, you're going to at least have the potential to tip over a fish in otherwise clear water. So it's not to say that you can't move clear water fish on streamers, but the workload is going to be stronger because their window of critique is bigger. You know what I mean? Gotcha. So faster. So clear water, faster, move it faster. Right. And, and, you know, pocket water is much different than tailwaters, you know, tailwaters, you know, you can hit the bank, you know, a hundred feet from that fish. And at 75, he might notice the bug in that clear flat kind of slowed, uh, uh, descent into those holes. 
Whereas like here on the Pier Marquette, you know, you're ankle deep and two steps away from floating your hat into a pocket, which is to say that the short game and the speed no longer play. Now you're back mm. in the bite triggers where you're trying to kind of tip him over on the persuasion oh, right. or angle of, you know, so it's, it's a different presentation based upon the condition. And then again, also the watershed, every watershed's got a different, you know, some of the really cool shit that I've been doing in the last five, six years is the small water, big fly streamer stuff. And when I say small water, I'm, I'm seven and a half foot rods, uh, very small sink tips working upstream, just like the New Zealand boys. And, um, and what you'll do is you'll come up on, uh, as you're wading up through these rivers and sometimes notice a boulder that has a butter hood ornament on it. You know what I mean? And instead of otherwise spooking that fish while walking downriver, the upstream, because they have that look and that persuasion um, in the upstream uh, forward of them, they don't notice as much behind. So I've gotten within, say, like 10, 15 feet of these fish before I can, you know, regress, take four steps back and throw them a four or five inch fly and make them chase it to my ankles. And, you know, Jeez. it's really cool to get that kind of visual, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So sorry, I'm running off. That's amazing. No, that, that is it. I mean, it reminds me of fishing for, uh, like coho in Alaska. You know what I mean? You're stripping these things right into your feet. I mean, that seems pretty crazy with brown trout being able to do that. But, um, well for the flies, you, you mentioned the clear versus dark and obviously conditions. I want to jump into that as we go, you know, on that. But, um, so if you take a fly, if you're tying your fly and I'm not sure if you want to talk about, you know, one of your flies or another one, but say you're tying it, say that clear versus where you're really ripping it fast, the clear water versus the darker stuff, where uh -huh. maybe it's right below the boat. How would you tie that fly differently? Would that be a similar fly or would you actually tie the, you know? I think that's a great question. Don't let me forget about olive and black and why the two of them work in completely two different kinds okay. of watercolor. So we all could agree that black has the strongest silhouette of color in mud correct i mean you can mm -hmm. throw white you can throw chartreuse and they, they all will work to some but if, if you're trying to give a fish a target in muddy water that's hard to see through black sticks out more than anything in fact i think somebody the science guys actually said the color was claret which hmm. has a little red within the black i guess that is the strongest oh, yeah. color spectrum for fish to find within that that dark muddy water now in that same perspective, I would also tell you that that fish in high muddy water is not out in the middle of the river, nor is he off the wall of the hole. He's right against the bank because if it's that muddy, it's typically blowing water, in which case the fish's angle of predation changes. When the water's clear, they're looking kind of laterally through the water column into that olive, green, aqua, mm, whatever your yep. watershed might be. Whereas in the muddy water, they start looking straight up. They're using the light of the sky to try and find something, which is why when you're fishing like a black leech or something like that in dirty water, often you will get that hit as you're lifting through the column because the fish's target is more relevant as it gets closer to the light. And they'll crush it. You've had them come right out of the water for it. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty fantastic the way that that kind of sizes up. Now, olive being close to black in, in our eye perspective, you know, a lot of, why does olive work so good in clear water? Well, if they're looking laterally through green and, and aqua blue waters, that, that greenish or light greenish or dark greenish olive kind of diffuses into that. And it builds what I call the curiosity. The curiosity is what makes them turn those pec fins. If you can get them to turn the pec fins, like break off of their hold, you're pretty much, I mean, 
I'm not going to say it's your fish to lose at that point, but if they break their hold, they feel like they should be paid for it because it's going to take more work to get back there. So the curiosity in, in that olive being one of the stronger clear water colors that we use, especially those lighter olives is only because they can't find it that well. Whereas if we threw black into the same situation, it would almost become too offensive, right? It would be a turnoff. So whenever we're choosing these streamers, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm going to tell you first and foremost, the, the mainstay of that wedge dig deer headed, awesome swimming drunk. The roots of that come from a rappella and why they whoop our ass every day of the week. You know what I mean? I mean, if it smelled like a fish and tasted like a fish, you know, I could, I could walk away from that, but having that, that simplistic, um, big pen outfishes with that. Right. Shut up. <laughs> but yeah. So anyways, uh, yeah, that's awesome. I, I think I ran off there again there, Dave. Sorry. That's, this is perfect. I think you could, you can go on these, these rant. Uh, I'll, I'll call them a rant because they're good rants, but I, I love they're this because good. all these topics are, you know, I mean, we just go super deep into them all. And today I kind of wanted to dig in like you're doing and maybe keep us rolling along. Cause I know there's some folks out there that maybe, uh, you know, want to get more of a bigger picture. And I'm thinking of the Pierre Marquette, which is cool. And you're, you're talking about these two things, right? A, a bigger river, maybe more color. You're fishing it right below the boat versus a smaller river where you're walking, wading and you're fishing, you know, and you're talking about color here. So the question I have, you know, if you are in that boat, um, I mean, are you doing that throughout the year? Are you fishing like equal amounts boat versus wade, or is this mo- or what, what's your daily look like? Mm, well, obviously, guiding and wading is is not you know something I do a ton of. I've got some regulars that I can get into that tighter stuff that I've already whipped and beaten into incredible anglers that can you know fish in a corridor as tight because this isn't Montana here in Michigan. We got fucking trees, mm, so right. you got to have a certain client that will be able to not only fish that water but fish it without getting frustrated right and yeah. and you you're never going to have a good tip or a good client you know well-being if if he's always frustrated with you got to walk before you run i guess is the best way yeah. and a lot of people would think that would be you know the 80 foot bomb cast on the white in arkansas i would argue that fishing the 25 footer upstream in the in the tag elder gap um, you know, in a window that you have to, you don't get to choose your backcast region so much as deal with the one that you're given. That's you want to know the roots of good casting. It's got nothing to do. I mean, I mean, I can go long. I can make backing, not skip out of a fly rod as good as anybody. I, well, there's a few guys that want my ass, but <laughs> for the most part, my cast has been made not because I could go long off my right every damn day of the week. It's because I couldn't it's because I was forced to find all these different angles of persuasion and figure eights, gravity loads, underdogs, you know, all these uh, roll casts, snap, you know, we, we've modified between spay fishing, generalized roll casting and back casting an array of different arrows in the quiver, because the more arrows you have in the quiver, the more water you afford yourself. You know, if, if you have to wait for that spot that has an open window off your right side, shit you just missed three quarters of the river i've got you in right now yep that's it so you gotta be ready you gotta be ready to cast to flick a thing over your right shoulder or a sight or the left shoulder or the yeah yeah. i mean you gotta you gotta be able to kind of you gotta you gotta adapt to the fisheries and you know going back to the big waters you know everybody's wants to you know if i had a dollar for everybody that's called me up and said what is your favorite streamer line i go that is such a weird question because i don't have an answer for that 
everybody's always asking me that and I can't like give fly an line, answer like, like their best fly line. Yeah. Or, or the you know, first and foremost, I'm an airflow man. I, I, I think it's really cool that you can't trash your lines with deet and sunscreen. I know. Um, yeah. They've kept Joan Wolf in mind. There's triangle in many of their line series. I believe that the Titan taper Skagit, um, and even some of the Euro aspects of, of this whole, you know, industry are, we're kind of dumbing it down a little bit more about selling something on a parking lot than we are teaching people how to fold a fly line and cast it versus right. shoot it, you yeah. know, and flick it and all this yeah. underscoring. Well, what makes fly fishing? It's supposed to be harder. It was yeah. never supposed to be easier. If it was supposed to be easier, we get night crawlers and a spinning rod and get it done. That's it. I always, we come back to that occasionally on the why, what makes it fly fishing because the Euro nymph, you know, that, that whole thing changes up a little bit, but it, it seems like the casting is a part of it, right? If, if you're not casting a fly, it seems like maybe you're not fly fishing. Would you agree with that? I've always said it like this. I've always said Euro nymphing is a deadly, terribly productive way to catch a fish on a fly. It's also a very poor way to learn how to fly fish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it teaches no basic, uh, mending strategies, casting strategies outside of, you know, basically water tension flicks and high sticks, which I used to use quite frequently when I fished night crawlers, when I was a kid, it was the same, you know, presentation. And, uh, what I kind of slipped away from was that as soon as you're not using some type of tapered line, you've negated a fly cast. And I think that's where fly fishing starts because, to present yep. the fly is the magic of this sport. If you if you have no road to get to that presentation, I think you've missed the boat on why we do this stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I said, uh, a MEP spinner or a, a rappella will do far better than any you know piece of chicken or deer I could spin out. Right. Uh, but I, right. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it is yeah, what it yeah. is. Sorry. And I'm not dogging the Euro guys. I mean, no. they, they get plenty of fish. They catch more oh, fish yeah. than I'm ever going to catch. Yada, yada, yada. What I don't like is with between Titan tapers and Skagits, we've gotten to this point where we're trying to sell the fly fishing via these kind of downscaled, you know, and, and Titan taper I, has its uses. Like if I'm throwing a giant Dahlberg or a musky fly, you can argue the need for such a taper and grainage. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I have a hard time getting there. I really do. Yeah. You know, if I'm on like the Dean or, or fishing the North Umpqua and I need to move, you know, you know, 15 feet of T14 or 10 feet of T14 yep. or whatever, you know, now we can argue about a Skagit because that is the tool that would otherwise be able to roll over such a massive lead core. Um, exactly. But if, if you're using it to get load sense, everybody should know that a Titan taper is not a six weight Titan taper, even if it says it on the box, it's an eight weight. Mm-hmm. in a six weights box right that's what a, that's what a titan is it's a lead yeah. pipe on the end of a runner <laughs> that says well and you mentioned i'm glad you went into the gear a little bit here because we get those questions quite a bit and and, and let's go down that road so if you're fishing let's just take it to the pier marquette and you're fishing one of those days where it's got some color you're right below the boat what, what line are you using on that day well and i love this the the questions on the lines because i have you know the ocd lets me fall asleep thinking about this shit so yeah nice the uh all of the different water so, so like when we go down the white in arkansas we're sometimes pushing those lines 110 120 feet without batting mm. an eye you know what i mean we're we're mm-hmm. taking big chicken and we're we're sending it in transit across the river we're applying two-handed burns in clearer water so we're using a head that's 40 plus 
It's, it's an airflow line. It's called the 40 plus. They make it in the blue and an extreme. The extreme is, I don't know how many uses I've found for that extreme, but that blue line in the condition that we would fish in a giant tailwater becomes invaluable for the two-handed because if I were using, say, like a max short to go to the other end of the spectrum, you have now a 16-foot head, which is to say that you've just shaved 25 feet of that head off and you've compacted all of that lead core into a shortened area which is great if you're bank beating, you know what I mean? Like if you're just trying to get the wall right out West and you don't, you're not worrying about the rest of the five sixes of the river, you know, you can just work that bank because out West, when that water's kicking, the bank's where the money's at. Right. And you could say, you know, what do they say in Argentina? The difference between four fish and 40 fish is four inches from the bank. So every time you kick up the flow out in the center of the river, it becomes a bank game. Now, when they shut the water off on these tailwaters, they become flat and they become clear. Where you take that um, critique and that, that consideration from a brown trout is in speed. You have to do it in speed. You have to take his, his consideration and shorten the whole time and force a reaction instead of that, that consideration. Um, and, and when we do a two-handed burn, I mean, it's... Mm, I'll tell you, you want to see a brown trout be all he can be, make him chase something that he can't catch. That's interesting to see that kind of hatred for a fly. But I would also tell you in the same sense, as many fish as we may move, roll, and get following on that clear water scenario, because of that clear water, we are, we are working against the grain out of the gate because that isn't a hunting window for him. We may be able to tip him into that predation mindset but as the water darkens is when he feels his opportunity to really start the feedback opening. That's, you know, everybody looks at a muddy river, you know, with a dry fly rod and says, fuck it, let's go home and drink scotch and, <laughs> and smoke cigars. And I'm thinking to myself, let's get the meat and get her done because yeah. that's when the big guys are actually out and vulnerable. Huh. I mean, in Michigan, we don't have some, you know, 200 yard gravel bar where even when the fish is, you know, not on step to kill shit. He's still nymphable down in the, in the ditch, right? Michigan, they're up under some undercut bank under some log jam so far away from, I mean, it's Dr. Seuss's bad dream where he's hanging out. You can't get a fly to him. There's no presentation to a fish like that, but if the conditions are right, he moves out and that's when he's vulnerable. Gotcha. Got it. So that in those conditions, so when it's muddy and, and nasty, and rage and you're not afraid you're, you're heading out there you're getting ready to go fishing oh no that's the game is a foot no that's that's go time i mean that's like okay let's put the nymph rods away um we can even put the larger dry flies away that's not to say in the summertime that i don't try and make a gigantic hopper or, or you know some big golden stone work when that but that's when i've got a foot or two of clarity in the mud you know what I mean? When that mud comes down, I mean, the banks are bleeding night crawlers. I mean, the Elodea mats are just releasing all the dead crawdads. I mean, there's food about. It is his job. It's not a consideration for him at that point. It's his job huh. to get his ass out there and get his protein so he can slip back under that log jam when the water does clear up. And take a breast. Yeah. Right. That's it. Gosh. So, so basically, this is your loving it. When you're you got clients coming in and you got a lot of rain or whatever the river's coming up. I mean, are you fishing on, on the rise, whether it's kind of coming up or at the top or heading down, it's, it's all good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm indifferent to that whole up and down on the water. I would say that when the water's rising, you're going to get the best bleed from the night crawlers from banks. 
just because you know you've seen after a thunderstorm what a, your yard looks like they're just popping out of it. here's a quick break for a word from our sponsor Deddy Flies, established in 1928, is the oldest family-run fly shop in the country. I'm excited to uh, continue digging in here because Deddy is going to be coming up on the podcast soon. We're going to be jumping in and answering some of those old um, historic questions you have, uh, some some on the uh, the history the history of the Catskills area and, and the dry flies there. That's going to be a fun one. Deddy has been providing quality and service since 1928, and it's their tradition that they just keep going strong. Located in Livingston Manor, Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their retail and online shop has a large selection of flies, materials, fishing gear, books, and more. And of course, they offer fly fishing and casting lessons as well as guided trips. For more information right now, check it out, Deddy Flies. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy, D-E-T-T-E. Or you can give them a call right now, 845-439-1166. And this is a great way to support this podcast. Click over, give them a ring, say hey, let them know you heard about about them on this podcast. And uh, you will be supporting and providing some value and giving back. I appreciate it in advance. Okay, back to the show. The question was, is just, you know, and, you know, and this could take us into the water, you know, the different uh, kind of variables in, in the water. But, you know, when you say the water's coming up, if it's on the rise, a quick rise, it just dumped the night before. Are you getting fired up and thinking like this is going to be a great day or, or are you thinking like you want it on the down? It's, it's already up and then you're looking at that hydrograph. Mm, I'm not a down or an up. And you can get it so muddy that it's just not, you know, feasible for good fly presentation, but that's a certain kind of blowout. You know what I mean? So anything shy of that, the game's on. Now, you know, when you, you, you ask me what I fish at rise, fall level, whatever, I'm more about the, that barometric in that window of any muddy water. So I've had days where I thought it was going to be perfect. You know what I mean? Be it the water color, the time of year, the water temperature, yada, yada, yada. You plug all that stuff in, it just doesn't work. The only consistency I've had on bite enhancement, which is to say that even when the water is muddy, to some level, you have some predators out because it's muddy. Now, what discerns that day from the day where you'd swear a bare hook works is I really think it's a barrel thing. Those swim bladders on those fish are terribly sensitive. And the only rhyme or reason I can come up with bite windows is a low flat barrel. And the day the you know, the bear hook works is, is when it drops and flattens a second time, anything under a two, nine, eight, Oh, uh, into a flat. Um, I, you know, and I'm saying like nine times out of 10, if I have a bite, which is to say, if my client has a certain skill level, he'll be moving X amount of fish on a particular day. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if he's moving so many fish inside of 25 feet, I can still plug that in and say a guy that was moving 40 feet might roll triple that count. But you can still see that potential in that that skill level. And whenever I see those bite windows come and go, it seems to me that it's not on the fall and it's not on the rise of the barometric. It's after the fall. Like anytime you get a stabilization after a fall, there's something about that window, uh, the the pre-existing storm coming in. Uh, I've had days where the water's gin clear and the sky's blue, but there's a thunderstorm 40 miles east of or west of us that starts messing with the barrel and the fish just go on. But I've had, like I said, where you go out there and all oh, the water's nice and dirty. It's got a nice stain to it. It's spring. They've been killing salmon fry yeah. and gone out there and caught 
not what I would have expected. But anytime I plug in that good day of fishing, if you look at your watch, which I often do when, when that's happening, is you can see that, that stabilization of the air mass after a low descent. Now, as soon as it starts rising, which is to say as soon as it starts raining often, the barrel starts to rise again. I rarely, if ever, have found a good bite window on that rise. And I don't like it on the fall either. I don't, I don't like the rise of the fall, but those low flats, those seem to, I've got, I've just got a lot of data that says that's the right window. That's it. So above all else, the the barometric pressure above, like whether the water is rising at some level or the color, you're really going back to that pressure. That's, that's something you've, you've seen. I would say it's all enhancements. I'm saying there's conditional and then there's barometric and then there's also feed enhancements. I mean, I've seen, you know, it's like when the salmon get up on the gravel, you know, for the first time here in, you know, middle September, usually they'll start getting out. And the first time those big ass brown trout that have been summer starved in that low clear water get their first sniff of that caviar. It's, uh, you know, high sun, doesn't matter. Gin clear sky, doesn't, they're just drunk back as if it were a hatch. You know how yeah. they start feeding on a hatch, you know, the whole. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't, I've never been that whole dry fly lead. You know, when a fish is drunk on a fly, yep. you know, your ability to hold a dead drift is really the only prerequisite to really getting that fish because he's so drunk on it, mm-hmm. you know, be it hatches, eggs or anything like that. But I've seen that bite window open based upon the, the, the food source. And, you know, it's like even in the dead of winter, you know, when the water temperatures, and that's the first time I really started noticing these barometrics with steelhead. You know, mm. you'd have these sections of river that you had done guide trips in and you've, you've looked into some of the holes and you can see that there's upwards of 25 to, you know, 50 fish in some of these pools and you'll go through it and you'll, you know, you'll bounce a couple, but you'll say something was wrong with that. And then, then instead of like going to new water, assuming that it was the holes you fish, you notice a, a snow squall coming, in, you know, like one of these little lake effect storms that we get and it starts messing with the barrow. So instead of going to new water, you go right back up to the top of where you didn't do as well in that, say, three quarters mm. of a mile that you gave at the college try. <laughs> and uh, you go right back through it and you bounce 10. There you go. So and, and, and if it can't be water temperature, it can't be a food source. Everything's frozen, you know, <laughs> and the main seam. I mean, not the river itself, but the, you know, the banks are, you know, it gets cold here in Michigan. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, right. uh, it, it's just neat to see those windows kind of, and, and steelhead are, don't have a fraction of the critique that brown trout do. Yeah. And nobody likes they're brown easier. trout because they're, yeah, nobody likes brown trout because they're easy. They, they suck. They are moody. <laughs> they are, they are critiquing. They're event based. Yeah. Um, even when you think you're doing it right, they'll still make you scratch your head three times that day. And, and you know what, that's, what's cool about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not uh, easy. Yeah, they're not bass, you know, they're, it takes a little something, you know, so. Yeah. Are there other uh, species? I, I know we talked a little about, you know, browns and, and steelhead, but other species where you hear, or you, maybe you've done some streamer fishing for other salmonids or other species you got, you hear quite a bit about out there? You know, the, you know, w- w- obviously we do have the salmon runs, but the bulk of that is all just, you know, the local guides, you know, feather in their bank accounts to get from one end of the snagging season to the other, but they're not eating. So this, the salmon yeah. that we have around here, we have some, you know, very sprinkled, scattered lake run events, um, you know, and you could argue most of those are still coming from the Wisconsin plants, but those are rare. Hmm. You know, there are some 
watersheds here in Michigan that house a pretty good rainbow population that, mm-hmm. that is away from any, you know, steelhead or above the dams and what have you. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously there's the brook trout that has got to be one of my favorite late summer getaways after, you know, just kind of being, you know, neck deep in the butter all summer. Yeah. Are, are you, is you hitting those with streamers? Yes, you can do that with streamers. I've got some uh, very, very, very small drunks that I've tied up for those, mm. even though most of the time you can probably get her done with a, you know, an asable skunk or a woolly bugger. Just, I mean, they're brook trout. That said, I've tied up some of these things that have like, uh, you know, TMCO 105 stinger hooks and they're yeah. tied on like a size, you know, six forward. So you're tying like these little mini D's and you're not getting into the strip. You, you get away from that more because the brook trout are so, you know, they're in rivers that are so tight that they don't offer that, that amount of scape to add that bigger fly presentation walk where you could jack at a yard. If you jack at a yard in some of these spots where fishing for brook trout, you're done with the spot. So it's more about the wiggle shake and having that condensed action, you know, going back to the fly lines, you know, in such a spot, you could go to the max shore, um, which has got to be, I mean, let's call it training wheels for where's my rolled cast and where's my load with a triangle sense. They've still tapered the front down and they've given the handler a, a pretty stiff diameter. I mean, it's, it's, it's noticeable. I don't want to call it like spay, but there is a noticeable handler that, that moves that lead core off the front, which, which I'm, I think really the, the fly line companies have been, you know, semi stepping up and airflow has always kind of been a, a ahead of that curve in my opinion. In that they've they've learned to kind of blend their their heads into the the runners much more efficiently, um, and, and they have a new 200 max short that's coming out. They say that they've gotten rid of some of the the cobwebs out of the running line. But outside of that, yeah, I, I do like that triangle um, sense. And you know, going back to the 40 plus when you're on a big watershed, yeah, uh, they have the beach. Uh, my favorite all around line has to be the surf. Um, I can fish that with a roll cast and tight quarters and still fish that on a tailwater. There's not too many lines out there. You can do both with, hmm. you know what I mean? Okay. Most, most watersheds, you know, there's, there's one of say, let's call it 13 different lines that I, I usually draw from with three or four of those being my, my mainstay. But again, as soon as you're getting into the tailwaters and the different water levels and the clarities, again, going to the tailwater we fish that middle river when the water's clear as soon as they jack up flows we're on the wall again on the wall yeah so as soon as the that cast and where you're looking for that fish changes even though the water says oh i can throw a big bomb cast sure you can but your target water is two yards off the wall right it's so right what there. the hell are you using the 40 foot head for you know yeah now as soon as it clears up and you need to sell that thing like a hooker on the boulevard all the way to the bow of the boat now we can discuss the need for that, you know, that longer head, that longer sales pitch, that all the way to the boat after the 80, 90 foot push. Huh. So, you yeah. know, it, it, it is different. So sorry. It is different. No, it's, there's a lot to it. That's the thing. The challenge today is trying to, I, I wanted to go general, right? But when you go general, it's like, okay, I want to dig into brookies in a small stream and there's probably a bunch of other trout, <laughs> right? There's brookies, small stream. That's like fish in middle earth, man. It's fun. That's awesome. That's awesome, though, because I know there's a big chunk of people that are into that and would love to to hear. So maybe we'll have to get you back on if you know at a later point too, if we can't dig into that today. But I do like the idea on the the design, you know, the fly lines and stuff because 
it is nice to give people, you know, a perspective of what you're using and the, that 40 plus for big water. I mean, if you break it down simply, you could say like you're saying, you know, big water, it's dark. You're going to be fishing close to the boat, maybe under the boat right off the bank. Clear water, you got to really strip that thing. So when you're coming up, let's say you're coming up to a, a clear stream, how are you reading the water? You know, you talked about those three different buckets, right? How, how do you know where to put that fly? Do you just know because of what the water looks like on the surface or how's that look? Well, you know, and I'd say the Pier Marquette and in recent years, just because the fish are getting more savvy, like they are in most watersheds, the downstream, you know, fishing downstream with a streamer, which you could argue, you know, especially with a drunk having a wedge grabbing current is a preferred angle uh, to fish, you know, fly. It's no different than throwing a rappel upstream. You got to crank it faster and it's a shorter cast. The, you know, the only thing you have going for you is the fact that the fish basically runs face first into all your hooks. That's about all you got going for you. When you're fishing downstream, you can, you can allow for slacks, some pause, uh, maximum grab on the current and stuff like that. And I'd say most bugs are, are not so much like that. Most bugs, you know, you're going to fish the barbell, the, the, the jig and pig to style, you know, the, the gallop, the, the sex dungeon where you're kind of, you yeah. throw it to the bank and you get that nice lychee walk off that wall, which in its own right is it's a proximity thing. I think when that leech looks like it's going to fall on the fish, I believe that's part of that bite trigger on those. Uh, whereas when we're fishing a true swim fly, we're not asking for that, uh, collision of, of, uh, of right. addresses we're we're drawing that fish like a sav we're trying to um we're trying to call it names from a distance that fish and and that's really the that's really where you get away from the the lead versus the swim fly stuff you know yeah. it's like blaine you ever see the tail on blaine's fly that little tail the little flicker yeah. Yeah. you know if you get fish that are getting finicky getting savvy and all that stuff you know you could argue you know it's like i hear guys say oh i never put eyes on my fly and, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said the same thing. I really would. have. And, and the reason being was the critique that these fisheries had back then was was far less than what it is now. Here's where I'm, I'm at with all that. You know, how do we make the fly swim? Is it worth putting this much time in it? Yeah. Should I put I, all this other stuff? Right. You could argue that from a two to four yard gap out that color and that action is your biggest, that's your biggest sale. You know what I mean? They're coming in from a distance to give that a consideration, a critique. You know what I mean? Um, I would also say that, you know, back then when, when fish weren't being pricked or hooked or they were seeing boats after they considered almost eating something that they would just hit the fly. It was like the white narc, you know, it's like if we didn't get a two footer every pass, we were doing something wrong. And, 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 and nowadays it's like, if you have a group of four boats out there, if one boat gets a two footer, it's like, oh yeah, you know, and, and that's, that's different than when they're naive to it. So when you start putting eyes on a fly, if you start adding a little bit more chuck and jive to the patterns, if you start giving the tail a really lifelike maneuver, like Blaine's, you know, mm -hmm. what you're doing is, is once that fish comes in for the critique, he now has to beat those, those small things. You know what I mean? He has to see that tail. Oh, another bite trigger. Oh, that thing just jacked and turned around and looked at me. Oh, that thing's got eyes. Now I know exactly where the head's at so I can grab it. Hmm. You know what I mean? Trout gotcha. cannot take these fish patterns backwards. It'll kill. Them. So yeah. they have to take it 
head first. If you put eyes on the front of a fly, that gives that fish that target. And therefore, maybe that window that he thinks he could get that thing head first. So do I put eyes on? Fuck yes, I put eyes on yeah. the fly. You know, and maybe yeah. it's more in my head than anything else. But I've seen right. enough fish get close to the boat and consider versus just kill these days. That if if that's the push, if that's the tip over, yeah, you know, where's the glue? You know, that's cool. <laughs> that's huge. I love that because it's you know you talk about the two different things. So basically, whether you're casting eighty feet out in clear water and stripping it in as fast as you can, or whether you're like bonking them on the head, like you're saying off the bank, maybe darker water, you still have eyes on your fly. Both of those flies have eyes. I would, you know, and, and you could argue that in that darker water, that critique is coming down just because the feedback's on and they can't see as well. So they're more on, on an instinctual grab versus a, a very, you know, considered one, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I've just seen too many fish in the last decade, instead of just, you know, swiping at the thing four times and getting it on five on one cast. I see more, you know, like a follow, a quick shark, and then all the way to the boat before they turn back away. Yeah. You know, they didn't always do that. They didn't always do that. Uh, I mean, given brown trout have always been a little bit higher on the bar as far as their, their sensitivity to the wrong of things, but it would usually get the better of them back in the day. You know what I mean? That yeah. got that opportunity yeah. that outweighed whatever you may or me may not be doing right to the bug that would otherwise, you know, turn him away. Nowadays, it seems like they come in and they give that critique before any kind of suicide. And we all love suicide, you know, (laughs) where you throw it on the bank, you make two strips and the fish just commits suicide. What I'm talking about is all those fish that everybody's ignoring. You know, it's like, you know, we, we talk about the zombie fishermen. I don't even know why they're looking at the water. They could watch the birds while they do it. I mean, they, they throw to the bank, they burn it back with no rhyme or reason the same way each and every, you know, um, when you throw it to the bank and just bring it back and and you're in a hurry for the next cast before the other one's halfway across, you're not not really fishing the bug so much as trying to burn color and burning color. Like I said, will eventually find that suicide. But there's all those would-be predators, those tip-over fish that are not being considered. And, uh, you know, especially the bigger ones, you know. Yeah. How are you getting those big ones when you say, you know, you're not just pulling it in like a zombie? I mean, what are you doing when you're, you know, maybe, I guess, say you're going towards the bank. I mean, how are you putting your 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 tweaks on that fly to make it move right? Well, I, I, you know, and you're going to have to go on on that color spread of water and all that other stuff. I mean, like when the water dirty i mean if he misses it you could just let it fall back in jig it twice and he's probably on it again uh-huh you know when you're in clear water and he does the same thing eh, you might want to just put that fish on a a roster of you know fish to hit on the way by again <laughs> you yeah. know the next pass or something like in clear water it's, it's harder to kind of keep that game lit um and and in the fall when we have that pre-spawn bite and that post-spawn bite you can see the difference in the two. I mean, the post-spawn is purely a feed bite where they're they're actually sharking the flies again, albeit the water's cold and they're doing it slower. They are turning completely sideways through that, that strike inertia. You know what I mean? And whereas if you notice in the fall, we call it the fall gur, 
And, and you'll notice brown trout rarely shark flies in the fall. They come up behind them and they grab the asses and they nip and they pull. And we call it the gur because you know, my buddy Brad Turner works in Missouri. He coined it the best. It's like a dog toy. They grab onto the bag and they shake their, oh, yeah. they shake their right. you know, and, and what they're trying to do is fend that would be fish pattern away from the nest because they feel like it's either, you know, competition or it's, they're just fending something away from the nest. You know what I mean? Huh. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's where you see the difference in the bite. Now, as soon as you get into, you know, winter, you'll start seeing that fogger replaced it with that, that full spring shark, which you'll see all the way through summer, all the way into that, you know, that pre-spawn uh, bite. Now, as soon as they get close to the gravels, you'll see that gird just take over where you might roll 40 fish and handle four, which is different than the spring, where if you roll a dozen, you might handle eight. You know, right. so it's just, it's a different motivation, even though you're using the same shit. So uh, yeah. I might wearing too much too. So no, 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 it's good. This is going to be a good one. We're going to keep, uh, sometimes, sometimes we, uh, on these, we beep them out, but if there's enough swear words, we just keep them in and makes it, and I'll put a explicit on the, uh, <laughs> so everybody knows And we, we've had a few of those. So this is great. I, I love to, I love where this conversation is going because I mean, again, it's, there's just so much to dig into, but I did want to hit on a couple things. I, I'm not sure if you know a lot about the history of streamers. We had a, a question in the Facebook group from a uh, call and, he was mm-hmm. asking about like um, he asked about the main, you know, main the tandem flies, the old streamers, and, and the start of the articulated. Do you know where where that kind of got started? All the history there. Shit, I mean, I can't. I really couldn't tell you. I mean, I started fishing like you know, sex dungeons and yeah, you know, rattlesnakes. So you started with the Kelly Gallup. Was was the was he the guy? That, well, uh, no, I could say that my first articulated flies were up in Alaska. We were using hmm. strip leeches for the Alaskan rainbows up there in 92, 92. That was when we started, you know, and I, I, I'd been a big fan of the zoot cougar before that. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously we came back to Michigan with all that strip leech technology and we tried to make fish patterns out of the leech and we did okay. And again, the fish were a bit more naive then. we put big dumbbell eyes, you know, do some polymering and then leave the tail long. And then there was a sex dungeon. That was really nice, especially on the smaller rods. Um, you know, as far as the articulated flies, man, I couldn't really tell you. I know there's some stuff that was tied on the East coast for, I, you know, a, a lot of the roots of some of the big flies for streamers of brown trout. If, if you really draw the lines way back, yeah, um, I, I, I keep hearing of the striper boys. Um, the striper guys were the first guys that were getting into those, you know, what we considered bigger flies back then, the Mark Sadatis and stuff like that. Uh, these guys uh, took, you know, what we thought was a big fly, which was like a big strip leech or a dungeon or, you know, or, or a rattlesnake, which was, you know, a respectable, you know, three to five inch streamer. And he showed us a world beyond six, eight inches. And, and, and since then, we, I've got drunks that are in excess of a foot long. Really? You know, and we tied some up for musky that were 14. We put old long worm hooks on the rear to compensate for the length. We use coke feathers so that we, you know, encourage just the most massive of why. I don't know if you know what a coke feather is, but it's no. like, uh, it's like a slot. It's like, sh- not slop. It's oh, like shlop. a nice saddle feather, but the stem is so stiff that you can't, it's hard to bend. So it becomes oh. like a butter knife when you put two of them together. <laughs> but what that encourages is just a sinister wide glide. We put them on side eyes. 
we put upwards of six or seven pencils of deer on like a six uh, side eye 20. I want to say those were 28 degree owners. And, uh, and we would just tie these massive and, and I did well, I mean, I caught five muskie in one day on, uh, on a, on a triple that was oversized and, you know, dialed up for that. But, you know, uh, the um well, i'm sorry i just got, got off subject where'd i go dave yeah no you know you're doing good i think that I, I wanted to bring it into i mean the big flies is a great uh you know is a great topic because you hear a lot about you know even when steelhead fishing right where you know the folks you know when they were getting that going back in the day it was like starting out oh how big can we make this thing and they kept getting yeah, yeah. It, right and then eventually they went down they're like well this isn't probably not the best thing for fish so they went back down to that prime size which is still uh-huh. big but but not too big um, but I wanted to get into this, talk about the drunken disorderly. Cause again, we mentioned that a couple of times here, but if somebody doesn't have that pulled up, you know, Googled up in front of them, maybe hasn't seen it Describe like that fly. What, what is, what makes that fly unique? Oh, it was my knockoff to the repellent. And there's okay. been, and you know, that fly has spawned a lot of different knocks from it yeah. in, in, a, in a lot of different arenas, even over the ponds and. I think mm-hmm. it's really cool to kind of see that we've gotten a, away from just that blatant deceiver mold or that, you know, that jig fly mold. We're kind of, we're really, I think as fly fishing, you know, keeps evolving, uh, so does the sales pitch. And, and the truth, truth be told, I mean, we refer to the number 13 black and gold rapella in Michigan as trout kryptonite. And the problem being is, is that has been trout kryptonite for as long as I've been alive and before. So the fact that that still works and that whole idea that the fish are still critiquing and all that, why does that pattern still work? Well, I still believe it's a movement thing. You know, you can dress it up and say, well, I need to change my color or or this, you know, I just, you know, and, and, and don't think for a second, Dave, that I don't whip out a cougar or a a peanut or a, or a dungeon. And I, and I always like to, cause I second guess myself a lot when there's a low streamer bite. So I'll start rotating through some old stocks, maybe some new stocks and I'll try and get that data that says that I it's in my head. It's, it's really not in the water. The water kind of gives you so much each day, but in that, you know, you know, when they're not giving you a bunch, you have this tendency to second guess yourself and start changing everything. And, and, and I just soon change the way it moves. That's I right. really, I, I think if you can make the fly move differently based upon the watershed, it's going to be different than what they've seen. And therefore that sets a bite trick. And when you make that fly move differently, you could just make it by the way you tie it. I mean, you, that would be one thing. Do you have, we do. I mean, yeah. I mean, from mini all the way up to that six out musky shit. I mean, there's a, I don't know, a dozen different forward hooks that I'm using between side eyes, down eyes, 60 degrees, 45 degrees. And it's just like going to Jay's sporting goods and looking at all the crankbaits on the wall. Eventually kind of dial it up like that where you're, you're trying to do. And the rudders behind that, I mean, the wedge is fantastic. I don't think without that, those flanks as working as rudders and kind of against the original dive angle, that's, that's what makes it drunk. And the rudders are the, what are the rudders? Like describe what you have in there. What, what are those rudders? Well, so it's like, if, if you look at the bug, um, every time, every step from the head to the tail, be it a triple or a double, every, every angle of rudder is fighting against the one before. So it's like, I've got a wedge that's flat and lateral that goes into a vertical two 
planks that are squeezed together to promote like a squish of material. So you get like that knifey glide behind that. So that creates that jig and slide. Whereas the back end is kind of cougary where you put that, that flank on the rear tail. So it shimmies side to side post the long shank jab left to right. The longer the shank is on the forward hook, the more it's like a rifle to a handgun in how much it jacks the rear hook. So when we get into the 4X longs and stuff like that, gotcha. you, it's not because we're trying to make the bug longer so much as we're trying to give the wedge more of a kick to the rear of that first hook, which, which in turn travels to the rear. That's, yeah. that's kind of the, you know, gotcha. and especially when you get into the triple, you get into that little knifey rudder in the back, you lose all the shake in the pattern. I mean, the drunk is the broke back rappella to the triples, uh, banjo minnow soft plastic sluggo slight it, it's more of a plastic movement than it is a a kind of a crankbait movement if that makes any sense yeah so wow so there's a lot here and obviously the type the way you tie it and so if somebody was listening here and they were wanting to go out and, and you know hit the water what's a few tips to give them i mean could they just pick up a few of your flies and it seems like there's a lot of different variations what would you recommend if somebody wanted to just get something and get out there and give it a shot well that that mini that mini drunk is probably the the lock picker on i mean the triples are great for the the you know the bigger watersheds especially in those watersheds where they've got planters i mean half the time we're tying those triples we're trying to mimic the planter uh, rainbow is sometimes you know okay put into these waters i mean yes the dnr guys here in michigan when they bring over those rainbow trucks at odin pile what you doing and the guy will say feeding the browns <laughs> <laughs> there you go you know? that's it so that's a good time to get out when they're planting the fish uh, no no i i've i've tend to avoid that opening weekend or anything around of it uh, or at least in you know those watersheds that get it just because you get a lot of the little worm guys that'll show up for that weekend or whatever else oh, but gotcha i yeah. will tell you this down in arkansas i mean you know those trout down there have become so accustomed to eating the rainbows um i mean i've i could tell you i probably heard a half a dozen different stories about guys just you know basically throwing casts off the back of the planter truck and they pull out you know the end of the world so um, yeah. you know, that, that does have, that's no different than chumming, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. a bigger version of it, you know? Right. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, as far as the drunks, uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that there's one foolproof way to fish them all. I mean, uh, there really just isn't, I would say that there's, there's very little rod, um, influence mm. on the bug. I okay. would say that. So you're not doing the Kelly, like the Kelly got mentions the, uh, yeah. Using the rod to work it a lot. Right. Well, I mean, like when we're using let and, and, and I think Kelly has one now, the flatliner, which I really like, and I'm not sure, I don't think there's lead in that one, but I like the way that one moves. Cause it has that kind of lateral leaf in the wind kind of spin off. It, mm -hmm. it, it looks like, but you're right. When you're getting into that lead headed, anything, I mean, it's a jig fly. I mean, you can, you can put whatever training material behind that you'd like to, but as soon as the head is falling post your left, it's still jigging. So it's yeah. just what color leech or fish are you trying to jig? So Gallup um, or, or Kelly's uh, tech, and I was just over at his place uh, last week. I had the boys out in Yellowstone. Um, the uh, the lift and strip, especially for Kelly, because he fishes that Madison, which is a very wall-associated streamer fishery. Uh, you could say that 90% of the fish are within one yard of that Madison river bank. So having even the style of line that he just, you know, he took his original 
uh, gallop long, the 30 footer, which I loved in the 250. And then he put this little um, excess amount of lead core on the very tip of it, which suits for his river. I have I haven't really found a use for that line, but what he's trying to do in that western prospect, which is try and get that that sink tip immediately into that water right off the wall, because his sales pitch is three and a half feet wide. You know what I mean? He mm-hmm. has to get that bug in, and so that lifting jig, what it does is it makes the bug go up, and you relax it, it falls. Now you can add some some you know off rhythm and stuff like that yeah 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 to kind of get that but it's a it's a proximity hit it's i've always thought that like here in michigan when we're fishing those big leech patterns that they take them as a chestnut the chestnut lamprey we hear we have here which is a native um and it's not a sea lamprey it's not the giants that kind of attach themselves to the salmon Mm -hmm. like these are tiny little things they're like giant night crawlers yeah and they typically have this olive you know brown back with this like creamy gut and these little chestnuts will attach themselves to the brown trout and the brown trout eat them as much as they're eating the brown trout. And when you have one of these leeches in proximity about to fall on top of a fish that's in that, you know, that state of pause or just holding or, or maybe, he's, you know, set up as a predator. But when it falls on him, it forces him to kind of react to it. It's like I, either I eat that thing or it's going to attach to me, you know. Um, and, and so I think when we get back into that swim fly stuff, you're, you're not really working the fly direct anymore. Whereas like with the gallop, it is a direct lift yeah. of the bug via the rod with right. the swim fly stuff. You're working the line. The rod is yep. taken out of the equation. You're trying to put as much shock off rhythm and action into that fly via strips and loose finger. I always strip with an open finger. Um, the post slack following a strip is more deadly than your strip itself. The dart forward isn't nearly as cool as the four ways it recovers following with a swim fly. If you allow a swim fly to swim, it has four ways to your one. If you're stripping with a taunt finger and trying to gather line as fast as you can, you've missed the boat on what a swim fly is. Right. So you strip fast, but then as soon as you stop and go back to your, before your next strip, you're letting it, are you doing anything or are you just pausing and letting it do its thing in the current? And I love where you're going with this because yeah. this is that mindset that most of my guys have when they come into the boat where there's this like, there's this like primer. The idea of fishing a swim fly is in the water that it's in at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, one of my clients coined something that I still use it on all the rest of them. Um, he says it's like jerking off a gerbil. It's... <laughs> It is the shortest, sharpest pop that you can make with two fingers with an open finger strip. What it's doing is it's promoting that wedge to dig and then get that yaw or right or left or chuck or jive or wide, whatever you want to call it. But as soon as you pull the wedge, you've depressed the U in the sink tip. Nobody factors that in when they're using a good sink tip is that there's a U in that line. Mm-hmm. The sink tip on a swim fly typically is deeper than the fly itself. That angle is lost the moment you go to a long strip maneuver because that right. you relaxes and whatever depth you may have achieved before it is now gone. So, yep. you know, quick, you have to fish. I mean, it's the same, you know, it's like Kelly. Kelly likes that really short leader to the jig fly. That makes mm-hmm. sense because he's getting a direct action to that, that flies head with the rod. When I'm fishing, I typically try and stay in the longest leader that I possibly can, given the watershed. On the Pier Marquette, that might be eight feet, nine feet in some of the upper sections. 
And in small water, I might even drop that down to six feet. But when I go to places like the white in, in Arkansas, I might bump that out to 12. The less diameter close to the fly of that, uh, or that, you know, if you have low diameters coming into the, the head of the fly, the drag of that water on such a long cast is lessened and allows for a slack post strip that wouldn't be there if the fly line were within five or six feet of the fly head promoting that constant drag and no swim. No. So you want that. So you want to say, let's say that eight foot leader, if you have that on the pier, Marquette, you're fishing it. What, um, what type of leader would it describe that a little bit? How you are you, what are you using there? You know, I, I love the taper down. I'll come from like, you know, 35 or 40, depending on the, the, the color of the water butt section into like a, you know, like a, uh, a 30 then a 25 and then for a tippet you know when the water's muddy running 20 pound isn't out of the question most hmm. of the year 16 pound and based wow. upon the size of the fly you should always dictate what would give that the most neutrality in that post strip that's that's something else a lot of guys will put on like you know straight maxima 12 pound which let's face it has the same diameter as a 20 pound high grade fluorocarbon you know what i mean so you can say all you want, I don't need that expensive line. Well, mono floats, fluoro doesn't, and it's much more invisible underwater. Number two, it doesn't stretch as much, which gives you a hookup when that fish turns and pricks you when you can't even see them down deep, might give you the edge on actually getting the, the knife point in versus, you know, feeling that prick off. Um, but having that high diameter tippet near the head of a fly, like if I'm using a skunk, I'll use a three X. That's a tiny little bug, right? I don't want any water drag on it, but I still want enough tippet there that if I have to set the hook, I don't break it off either. Yeah. There's always that Goldilocks with whatever fly in whatever watershed you might be fishing. Today's episode is sponsored by Bear Vault, keeping wild adventure going and assuring your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. They build a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other critters out of your food. Uh, and they've been working behind the scenes now. I know I just talked to Grant and they've got a couple of new products coming out here. So you got to check them out. I know one is a, a small version of what they have going. So if uh, if you wanted to check in with that and see what they uh, what that looks like, you can go to uh, Bear Vault right now and, and check it out. I know I've had a number of times in my lifetime where I've been on trips and uh, keeping critters and bears and, and animals out of the food is always always a struggle. So if you're either hiking into the backcountry or going to be around some areas where you're worried about wild animals, especially bears, the Bear Vault is the product you need. Believe it or not, food storage is a very important consideration while going into the backcountry, hiking, fishing, camping take that bear vault and if you remember on a past episode it also doubles as a stool add bear vault to your backcountry fishing trip today check them out right now bear vault that's wetflyswing.com slash bear vault b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t to support this podcast and a great solution today and in the clear when you're hitting the the opposite or if you're on the clear stuff are you still using a pretty good a uh, pretty hefty 3x uh, tippet oh well with a drunk i'm never using 3x with a yeah. drunk it starts at probably in my lowest demeanor maybe a 0x oh wow yeah and that's that's if i'm fishing some really tight quarters and it's clear probably fall just because that's the only time i'd fish water that clear with streamers 
Yeah, I was just thinking on the you know, as we finish off this leader conversation, you know, you're, it, again, it comes down to clear versus dark, you know, that sort of thing. But in general, you're fishing the drunken D. What um, what does that tip it look like as far as I guess you could talk the X? Oh, the the yeah, the the tip. So I'll I'll scale down. So and there's a great primer for that. I I do like when I go to those bigger watersheds, I'll start um the butt section very short. And then the tippet going into the bug is the longest piece of the leader tippet system because I'm I'm looking for, I'm trying to minimize the drag on that fly head. Yep, yep, and use the butt, thick butt to turn your fly over, but then keep a long tippet. And if you're allowed to pick up 35 feet for your back cast, that's not a big deal, is it? Right. But if yeah. I tried doing the same 12 foot leader, if I was in some small water, that'd be right. like one hundred suicide, like Euro nymphing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you'd be trying a euro nymph without actually getting anything out of it. I, I've, yeah, yeah that's right nice nice well uh we definitely dug into a few topics here i think um you know i mean I, there's a few things i let, let's just take this the gear out real quick because i know somebody's going to be interested on the rod so uh -huh. again there's different levels you mentioned the seven half foot for the small stuff but if you're on the pier you're fishing out of a boat uh i mean what what rod are you does it really matter what type of rod what weight are you using oh i'm a sage man like through and through like there is there is all those rods and then they all want to be sage when they want to grow up yeah, yeah. no sage yeah. sage is a, a really good i do like a tip friendly rod that's up when i'm fishing a streamer in really tight water i've got this little eight foot glass echo just because uh -huh. one i'm not going to cry as much when it you know gets chopped off by a tree but number two your ability to feel the load without you know getting that maximum amount of taper out to make the cast any rod that would yeah. give you load awareness inside of a 20 foot back cast. Mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of the rod for that quarter. Now, um, do I like the nine and a half foot rods generally speaking for any place that I might use a roll cast? Absolutely. So on the pure Marquette, it's really tough to get away from the nine and a half. Do I like the yeah. 10? No, because then you get nope. wrist fatigues, you're losing hook set potentials and all that other stuff. But between steeple casting, um, the mouse, uh, uh, casting over the grass, the ability to roll cast. Um, these are all bonuses to the, and there is one more bonus. You know, we do the strip stuff for the steelhead now, which is stupid. Cool. I don't know. Oh, wow. Um, oh, you, you don't know about this. So this no, is, no. I mean, I've heard a little bit. Yeah. But I haven't done much of the stripping for steelhead. Well, I've got like Obi Wald Kenobi who I call, he's like the, the guy, um, that new Zimmy. No, he's, he's, he's our Obi Ben Kenobi. Guy. Is this the New Zealand guy? No, 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 no. This no. is a, this is a guide here. Who's been in my neck of the woods here since, well, before I was born. Oh, okay. And he was the first guy that I knew that was swinging flies on two handed rods in this state. I mean, hands down. I mean, there's a few guys that have popularized it, but, uh, we're talking, you know, back in the, you know, mid late eighties, I saw this guy out here with a two hander when two handers weren't a word yet, you know? Right. And, uh, at least around here, you know, cause the steelhead thing was still, you know, snag them off gravel and the spring and yada, yada, yada. Anyways, uh, shoot. I just lost train of thought. I was at Obi Walt Kenobi. Yeah. I, know, I was going to say, well, that, look, go back to that Obi Walt. So oh, who the is this stripping? Person? That's right. Yeah. yeah. The stripping. So yeah. Obi Walt and, uh, this other local guy that I'm not going to mention, um, yep. you know, they, they call me out because as I got away from the salmon snagging, I started getting more and more into this false, uh, uh, uh brown trout streamer thing that's you know kind of consumed the better part of the fall uh -huh. um but they always told me that the reason i was getting those steelhead to eat the strip fly these are wild fish these are yeah. not these are not ohio these are wild steelhead 
We don't get any plants in the Pier Marquette. And these fish are chasing the drunk to the boat. We've had three or four wow. of them run into the damn boat. Like you Crazy. hear a thud, like somebody dropping a coffee cup. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've, these fish are coming and you get to see the chase. So all the guys, you know, that are really deep into the spay by this point, cause I, I started stripping for those things maybe a decade ago, you know, with any kind of forecast, that's not to say we didn't catch the occasional summer run or yeah. drop back in the spring or something like that. But the fall winter fish were always kind of, you know, it's always, you either swang them or you bop them, you know, that was, that was kind of that, you know, or you chuck them, which is mm. cop out. Yep. And, and we found that having this fly stripped and, and he's like, oh, the water temperatures are right. So just before I go to Arkansas, and this is maybe six, seven years ago, he's like, they won't eat that fly in the cold. This is the guy who goes out swinging five out of six days on his days okay. off. You know, this is Walt, you know, oh, yeah. so he spends four days out there and he gets one puck four days and he says you're not going to get a steelhead to take that strip fly in this icy cold water and i go why is that and he says well they just don't chase fly and i go well why do they eat you know like hot and tots and mep spinners then right and and i see this kind of weird kind of flustered well they're that's doing a lot more than your fly and i go let me show you something and uh and we so we get in the boat this is uh two days before i'm getting in the car to go down to arkansas with this big group that i host down there and uh and we get in at McDougal's and there's slush floating down the, the seam. I mean, there's like, it's like so icy. There's sludge, there's cotton in the oh. seam, right? I'm like, oh. is this cold enough for you? He said, you ain't going to get shit to move in this thing. And this <laughs> other guy in the back, the other naysayers in the back of the boat going, there's just no way. There's no way. We get three bends down and I had one come up off the starboard uh, oarlock. Mm. And it comes up and and the glare in Michigan in winter with the snow and oh, it's man. just it's so intense. It's like looking at a bronze mirror, right? Yeah. So as I'm pulling this thing out of the water, this this I don't know, twelve pound steelhead, and I'm I, I I'll, I'll be honest, I might have been pulling a little early, but you can't see anything, so it's not like you pulled on anything that you thought was there. You were just finishing the cap. This yeah. fish comes out and gets this is two bends down from the launch we put in. Gets oh. Walter's face wet. When no the way. tail gets the mess, and he's like, and you should know something to get his eyebrow to raise, you know, it would be like taking the leaning tower of Pisa and pushing it straight. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was, it was really a neat moment in my career wow. to have Walt Rao go, no shit. So he was in yeah. your boat. He was in your boat. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, it was, my, it was my boat and we yeah. fish often together, you know, it's, oh, yeah. you know. But he he's a swing guy slash, you know, the bobber thing. And the bobber ah, thing around amazing. here wasn't trending. He used to laugh at me for that because I wasn't yeah. chucking. Yeah, um, but that's, the whole strip it. fly to see a steelhead come that hard for a fly. Yeah. Uh, so and how did you take that on that fish when you when you took it? What was that like? What, what, what was the water like? And then what sort of? Um... Oh, 30, probably 31 degree water. I no shit. It was under freezing because there was cotton coming down. Um. It was, I mean, it's as cold as you can get. I mean, we're talking the first week of February. And, uh, you know, before we got done that day, I had two to hand and rolled two others. And this, this is being fed to somebody that is as good with a swing fly as you're ever going to meet. Yep. And he just spent four days out there getting a tuck. And so, 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 and, and basically what I told him, I go, Walt, I'm not doing or hitting any other bite trigger that you're not hitting with this the spay rod. The problem with the spay rod is is you're limited. Yeah. To the spot you go down and swing. 
Whereas when we're doing this drunk thing, it's like it's 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 like a radio station that doesn't turn off. You put the boat in the water and you start casting off either end of that boat. And the amount of steelhead that have migrated up by that point of the year That's is it. strong. So it's not a right. question of if you're going to get some movement. The question is, are you going to be ready when it comes? Because, again, you know, the fingers are cold. It's. You know, but you should see them in the fall. I mean, they'll take every bit of line off that deck before you can say steelhead. No shit. Wow. I mean, That's you'll really you'll cool. like right down there, seagulls over your head down in the lower river, and you're down there stripping in that bronze mirror with all the what's left of the leaves coming down. And there's guys down there throwing center pins. You're just throwing yep. drunks at the wall, and all of a sudden your entire line on the deck just start. It's as close to salt as I've seen in cold water. Oh man. They really, they're, they're meaner than those, you know, those Alaskan rainbows, those some pound for pound, yeah. bad, cold water fish. You get a fresh wild steelhead with an eye shot of the beach and he will burn your fingers five out of six times. So that's it. Wow. This is great. I'm glad we touched on the, that little steelhead because we got a lot of steelheaders that listen as well. So this is, you know, give some people, you know, another idea, right? Swing in the swing game, right? Is there, but there's definitely the stripping game is people. Do you see people doing this more and more for steelhead or is that still it's getting more trendy? It's getting, yeah. getting definitely more trendy again. I mean, when Walt had to lift the eyebrow and, and, and I got us, uh, was, uh, two falls later, two falls later, me and him were messing around. And, and one of his other standing points was, man, it's going to be hard to land a really big one on that single hander when he tears you up. Right. And it happened like three years later, we were down below Bowman's bridge and, uh, fishing this frog. I got like a 16 and a half pounder on a single hander. That was an absolute rodeo. I mean, it was like, mm. it, it was like totally poking the bear. And the thing trashes, we ended up putting a hole in the bottom of our nomad net because Walt <sighs> tried to pick the fish up. You know that, what do they call it? The hog net or the, oh yeah. With the, the FA net, the FA net. Uh -huh. We had the big one in there, but the, the 16 pounder is nose first into the bottom of it and punches right through the bottom. Slips. Yeah. We got a picture of it, but not before we had to bring the line back through the net, reland the fish with the hands. Damn. <laughs> Amazing. God, so. This is cool. Well, what about, I just want to just touch on this a little bit. So if I was, you know, calling you up or somebody's calling you up here uh, today or tomorrow, and they're trying to book a trip for the, you know, looking out over the next year, you know, when, when would I want to come there? When would be a real good time to focus? If we're focusing on, let's take it to the Browns for the, what we've been talking about. So, you know, yeah, yeah, the, the Browns may be the, uh, well, I don't know. I, I get a lot of, uh, fence swingers, um, you know, in that spring, you know, that April, May, mm -hmm. just cause they're coming out of that winter cold fog and they put the feedback on. There's a few sections up North that I go that I look them right in the eye of the clients. And I said, now listen, there's a very good possibility. You're going to get skunked today, but if you don't get skunked, it might be the best fish you've ever seen. Nice. So there, we have sections like that. We also have sections like the Pure Marquette where, you know, you can go down and maybe roll 40 and, you know, get a half dozen a hand and, you know, you can move a lot of, uh, of trout in some of these watersheds. I mean, the, the, I mean, I, I don't want to get into too many of the smaller yeah. ones, but right. you know, even the Muskegon, you know, and stuff like that, you can get into the two handed practice. A lot of the training we've done for Arkansas and some of the other big watersheds that we go to, we go down to the the Muskegon, which is a football field across, very shallow, very tailwater esque. And uh that's got a couple of good ones. In fact, my buddy Brad, just before he went to Missouri, got a 28 out of there. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds of venues. Now, if you're kind of near, you know, new to the whole fly mm-hmm. fishing thing, I'm not going to throw you into a streamer, you know, grinder before you should know a lot of the bait, you know, it's, it's hard to learn fly fishing with advanced streamers because advanced streamers is just that advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have some game and, and you're looking to kind of finish, which is kind of my mainstay nowadays is I get a lot of really good. In fact, you could say 80% of my client base owns their own boat, but these guys just want to get better at it. And, and in that persuasion, we were talking about every time you throw a fly into the water, it's kind of a different cast, just like it's a different yeah. river that day. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's more the mindset that you want to give somebody, not some kind of, you know, preset, you know, foundation of this will work anywhere you know right right no that doesn't yeah what you're trying to do is be adaptable you know every time you come up to a river you know look at it draw from it look at its color its flow the size of the fish that you're targeting Mm -hmm. even what the forage is at that particular season and you plug it all in you make three educated guesses and at best it's still witchcraft but it works more often than it doesn't these days so it's i guess the more witchcraft you get the (laughs) <laughs> yep, and you're learning. That's right. And then you're banking it like you, like you said, every day you're you're banking a new, uh, you know, a something piece new. Of data, you learn, right? You yeah. Know, plug it in. Yeah. Plug it. That's it. Well, before we get out of here, I want to touch on something we kind of talked uh, before we got going, and it's this, um, you know, the blacklist, right? This is kind of interesting. This is kind of ta- we're turning the the table here. This is more on client. Well, I guess we're talking about clients. If I was going to come up and fish with you, maybe uh-huh. I would. Uh, maybe I might. You know what I mean? You I doubt make if this- you're going to make the blacklist. Dave. <laughs> the blacklist. I really doubt it. I but, mean, but you got to. Me- <laughs> you got to be pretty hardcore. What is the so who is making this blacklist? So you got a few people over the years well, you're guiding I mean, for, all these, yeah. Yeah, I mean we're 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 service we're this is a service that we're selling. So it's not like some product. At some level we have to have this really long fuse for everybody that gets in the boat. Um typically the blacklist is either somebody that um you know doesn't like paying deposits, you know. Oh right. Um uh somebody that maybe calls you out for not knowing something that you know full well they have no idea what they're talking about. Oh wow. About. Yeah, geez. Um and and those are just a few, you know, and I've had a few you know, medical things like where I had a guy that, you know, wasn't, you know, he he was a certain persuasion. He was he was an old vet and he was and he's a nice guy. He's just, you know, if he's not medicated, he could be become, you know, that's hide, right. you know? Yeah. So, you know, as far as the blacklist, I don't really like talking about the blacklist, no. but, um, you know, there's 13 people. Yeah, exactly. 13 out of how many people have you guided? Do you think in your, in your years? Oh, that's creepy. I don't, I don't know. So that's more like thousands equation. Than a, <laughs> yeah. Thousands, I, I don't, yeah. I, I do know I've been guiding. This is my 32nd year of guiding. And, uh, and I haven't really done anything else with my adult life. I didn't go get a normal job. And, and, uh, and I say that, you know, I, you know, uh, just because on this blacklist, I think it's, there's definitely guides that listen to this, that, you know, this program are going to be listening to this. And I think especially made for new guides to realize, I remember when I guided, you know, I struggled at it because, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I probably wasn't the best person for the job and things like that, but I can imagine you get one of those people on there and it, it might, if you're early on, maybe set you off and be like, wow, am I the right person to do this? This is tough. Right. But for you, what you're saying is that it's a very small percentage of people over the years. Uh, yeah. And you know, you could throw a lot of that sometimes even at chemistry, you know, I've seen plenty of really good fishermen that seem like they're all in the same shit together. You know, they share a room together though. And it's like water and electricity. 
you know, I would tell anybody that's trying to build their client base to keep a longer fuse than maybe I have to nowadays, uh, you know, just, just to allow that person to maybe kind of get right with it all or, or not, you know, and, and I've been, you know, when I was younger, I'd give them two or three trips to kind of, you know, I'm not saying I need them to make me, ha- this is their day on the water, not yeah. mine. You know what I mean? That's the bottom line. But as soon as you don't make it fun, and, and, and I'm trying to bring you back into the fun world. It's like the guy that has tantrums because he lost one. I mean, I'm not talking just like, oh, I'm bummed that I missed that fish. Oh, that was a good one. No, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking that. No, I don't need him in the boat. You know, you know, the guy that, you know, right. you tell him, hey, you know, could you watch that tree over your head? And instead of a, you know, just a, a general look up to see where he's, he just makes the cast, takes the end of the rod off and says, Hey man, oh. guess what? You get to pay the shipping on that. I'm not being yeah. a cock. I'm just going to be the way that I need to be to be in business. Yeah. And, and they'll look at you like, what? I broke your rod. And so what dude? do you know what it takes to get a rod back post COVID from Sage? It's like, oh, right. give it to them. And they've got two different rods that have come out, you know, that are, you know, <laughs> before <laughs> it's you get, so, it, it, you know, they, yeah. you're, you're trying to give them the best direction. And, and I think it really sucks when somebody up in the bow of the boat thinks that you're there to do anything but give them the absolute best chance and best knowledge grab they can. from. A, that's why you're there. That's what you're trying to yeah. do. It's up to them to fuck that up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And That's as soon right. as they go out of their way to do it, yeah, you get the blacklist. I don't need your money. I just assume hang out with my boys and take them fishing. Shit. That's the blacklist. That makes sense. No, thanks for clarifying that. That was kind of, you know, I just kind of interesting because I heard that and it, it, I just wanted to dig into a little bit. What, what would you give advice? So if it was me or somebody else coming out as a client for yours for the first time, is there a tip, you know, you would tell that person or, you know, if they're to have a good successful day? Oh, I don't know. Uh, bring some faith. Yeah. Faith catches more than anything I can tie or cast. That's a fact. Yep. So even when it's, even when you're rough, you, you've gone for a, a, like half the day or longer without maybe a touch or something like that, you should still, still have faith. So going back to that barometric, you know, that whole bite window thing, right? Yeah. You know, I've heard of these guides that go out and they'll get that two, three hour intermission of nothing's happening. And they start talking their clients into ending the day because they're not biting. Right. Jeez. Oh, that's that's common around here. It's pretty sad. They do it a lot with the night trips. It's pretty pretty oh, yeah. weak. Uh, long and the short of it is, what's to say the bite window doesn't turn on in five minutes from now? Exactly. So fly fishing is the improvement of in between those windows of bite window because you can be like the worst or best fisherman during any one bite window that can open. But I can have all the fish in the river biting all at once. And if you don't know how to cast or present to them, it doesn't matter. You have to have some game. So fly fishing is constantly, they tell me it's like golf. I don't golf. But they tell me it's like golf in that you're always improving that awareness of game. You know what I mean? If a guy that has game shows up to a bite window that opens, he's going to do something with it. If I bring a complete neophyte that doesn't either know how to learn or doesn't want to learn, I can have fish rising on all four corners of that boat. Doesn't mean he's going to get one. No, you know, it's in, and I'd rather be lucky than good any day of the week. So anytime the brand new, I had a guy get a 24 and a quarter inch fish last spring, his second day streamer fishing third day with a fly rod. Oh man. 
you know, and, and you want that fish for so many of the guys that have put in their quarters and you always tell the guy, Hey, you know, maybe you should take up bowling. Cause you just, you know, you just right. took knots out of the old fly fishing belt there Jeez. And, and all this other stuff. But yeah, I, I've gotten to the point with my game and my client's game that I'm always trying to kind of improve the presentation or the wherewithal on what might or, or could work so that if it does turn out, or if that one, you know, when we talk about barometrics, I always refer to the percentages. So like when you've got a really good barometric, a high percentage of predaceous fish are out on the, on the roam, right? Which in, increases your chances of coming tight with one because you're selling the fly in that target rich environment. I would also say that even when the bite is off, there is still a low percentage of fish in play. And if one of those fish happens to be 24 to 28 inches and you get them, wasn't that slow of a day, was it? Yeah, that's right. It only takes one. Really wasn't. Yeah, you got a shot at them. Yep. You got them. It didn't matter. But that, you know, it's like this, that going back to a couple of these places on the Manistee, we get up on the north, uh, just north. We, um, you go down and, you know, you might fish all day for four rolled fish. And my regulars know it. And you mm -hmm. should see them, man. They stare at that water so hard and they fish that fly like a champ right to the boat, never pulling it out early. Yeah. And I, I'd be lying if I didn't have to ask them a half a dozen to a dozen times a day, do you see one? Because the way they're fishing oh, right. it is so, you'd swear something was behind it and they were teasing them up versus yeah. the zombie dude who just threw another cast because he couldn't yep. get the other one out of the water fast enough. That's it. You know, it. and it's so yeah. it's like if you come there with that faith, that intention, and then again, that skill level, the difference between seeing the monster and going back, you should have seen the one and converting on him mm -hmm. is game. If you have game, you can, you can, and again, going back to fly fishing, this isn't supposed to be easy. You know, you put, you put an old man and a kid right next to each other with a nightcrawler, they flick it out. They both got about the same shot catching something cool. Agreed? Yeah, you could argue that that worm is catering to four senses. It doesn't just look like a worm; it smells, tastes, and feels like one. So when that fish gets around it, that is the sale. You could argue that it wasn't the angler that caught that fish so much as the night crawler. Anytime a guy takes the time to sit down at a device and and spends countless hours whipping around that ribbon pole that we call a fly rod has at least given some thought to the idea of improving that game so that the angler catches the fish, not the pattern or the, you know, the presented article. It's it, that's really the difference between fishermen and anglers. That's it. Yeah, you know, fishermen funny. need something to happen. And let's face it. If you're fishing that night crawler, fishing better be great because it's yep. like watching paint dry. If it's not, <laughs> you know, you can go fly fishing, have a terrible day of productivity. And still have a blast getting better with your game so that when the game yeah. when the window opens, you're there for it. That's awesome. I, I love it. You said before that don't be a zombie. That's a great quote. You know, I mean <laughs> You know what that I'm talking one, right? about. Oh yeah. Well it still has the same. Still has the same. And, and when you start out, you don't think about it. you're like, okay, downstream and across, downstream and across, you know, you're swinging the fly or whatever. And you can you can get in that zombie window. But all the people that I have had on here that have dug into it like you have today. It's always the same thing. It's like, man, what is that fly doing? 
you know, like think about it. Like what, how are you, how, how are you, you know, tweaking that fly? So it's doing exactly what you want it to do. Right. Point of view too. Don't stop looking at that bug from our point of view. Try and take it from there. Oh yeah. As best you predator. can anyways. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, sunny days, always fish below the halfway point of the column, cloudy days. You can get a little rude, you know, that's it. That's the, you know, that's the fish whisperer. That's why we, at the start, we were talking about like, you were going to tell me what it was about. And maybe we could finish up with that is that you're talking about the fish whisperer. What does that mean to me and you probably? It means like, how are you that brown trout below the surface looking at that fly? And you're kind of that, that's, is that kind of where it, where it comes from? I think perspective is everything. And if I had a dollar for every night, I fell asleep kicking myself on why that fucking rappella whoops our ass so bad every day. There wouldn't be a drunk without a rappella. Yeah. The fact that that broke back Rapello in my childhood and in, in retrospect, talking with all my gear buddies around here. I mean, there is something about that basic injured randomness of a fish losing its equilibrium. You know, that equilibrium loss in an injured yeah. fish where the belly starts to roll up. They try and mm -hmm. swim, swim it down, but it doesn't work. They keep tipping. Yep. When brown trout see that weird flashing. Um, I don't know if I've, did I tell you this, the smolt story? Um, no. Yeah. So, so when I used to snag steelhead, this is many years ago and I feel dirty and I needed two showers. Yep. We used to stand <laughs> on the top of this, what else riffles and these smolt balls, which is uh steelhead smolt, uh, the wild fish on their way back out to the lake. Oh yeah. Um, in early spring, they fall out of the river in clumps of 20 to a hundred. They're like little schools of steelhead on their, on their exodus out of the river. When I would stand on these gravel bars, um, uh, watching the, the adult steelhead actually still spawning, you would see these smoke poles come into these shallow riffle areas. And for some reason, you would see one break out of the pack. Just one. Just one would break out of that, that school and start charging for uh, either bank, right? And in its exodus, you could see this, this flashing that didn't match the rest of the fish's downstream track. It was, it was flashing. It was erratic. It was, and I couldn't help but think mother of Mary, that looks like a damn rappella coming through the water. And, and, and just before that fish would typically get to the shallow water, you would never see the brown trout before you, he, he would expose his, his predator and he would just blow the thing up. I mean, you just, one minute there's a smolt next, it's gone. And there's a flash of butter going back out to the center. But it was always unique to me how the rest of the fish that were not injured, it, it's like the lion picking out the, oh, the, no. the weak and injured, you know, it finds that one that there's something off with it and he singles them out and he chases them out of the herd and then he smokes them no different than any other predator. And it, but it was neat to me to see that the other smolt never reacted. Oh, right. It was like, and, and, and so that injury, that inconsistent random flashing of that off equilibrium of the belly of that fish trying to tip itself over which it doesn't want to do, but it's, it's off. It's, it's wrong. That brown trout looks, it just, it, whether or not he's feeding or predating, it doesn't matter. It's his fucking job. Yeah. And so if we could make more patterns that key that, you know, you wonder what the, the baseline of why they hit a map spinner, go ahead and tell me that thing looks like a minnow or an insect. Good luck with that. No, what they're doing is they're getting inconsistent, random flash in a washing machine cycle kind of way. Yeah, it looks like I mean, a, so a wounded. I mean, that is it. A wounded, uh, it's the prey-predator relationship, essentially. It's no different than any, like you're saying, any other animal. No, no. And, and, it's, and it, was, it's just, it was always fascinating how that rest of the ball never reacted to the brown, but the injured one. 
the injured one freaked and spooked. Yeah. And I, I still yeah. think about that a lot. I do. So love it. Anyways. All right, Tommy. Well, that's, uh, I think we put in, we've gone over and above and we're, uh, you know, over delivering on, on the information today. So, um, so yeah, you want to give a heads up, just kind of coming for you the rest of this year, any, anything new with, um, you know, any trips or anything you want to give a shout out to with your, uh, your, your business? Uh, shit, I don't know, Dave. Um, yeah. is it looking like the rest of this year? I mean, what is, what is your year look like as you look, it's kind of summertime now as you get into the you know, summer through the fall. Are you, are you just hitting it hard fishing now all the way through the summer into the fall or do you take little breaks? Yeah. My break is usually, you know, kind of that, that January, early February. And then, and then again, I, I don't, I try not to work a lot in the middle of March through like, uh, the middle of April, just cause that snow melt water. And outside of that, we just, you know, I don't bowl. I don't hunt. Yep. Yep. Nine months. Take people fishing. Then I go fishing. I mean, it's kind of this reoccurring loop I can't get out of. So, yeah, um. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, right on. Well, I'll send everybody out to the uh, thefishwhisperer.com for questions, and they can send you email there. Or they can check in with me if I'm. I'm sure you'll uh, hopefully hear from a few people and maybe have some questions there as well because we didn't we didn't go deep into all the like the fly tying. That's maybe for another episodes, but. You know, if they want to pick up some flies, where, where would you send it? If they want to pick up, uh, does it really matter where they go to pick up some of your flies? Uh, right now, I believe Fulling Mill is 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 uh, selling them. And, uh, okay. Yeah, Perfect. I'm trying to think. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of. I, I should probably be a little bit more aware of that. Yeah, be? that's all good. As long, as long as we got a location to go to, we'll, we'll send folks. Yeah, I there. think. Yeah, Fulling Mill has got a couple, and there's some more samples coming. So we'll. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll definitely get good. that out there. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. Yeah, this has been an awesome episode. I think we've we've touched the surface. Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll keep in touch with you and uh, definitely hope to get out in your neck of the woods. We might be getting out there later this year, and I'd love to connect with you down the line. Fantastic, Dave. You be swell. So there it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 347. 347. 347 will get you some of the Tommy Lynch goodness. Check it out. See what we got to surprise you up there right now. Make sure to check in with Tommy at the 1884 Fly Shop. That's 1884 Fly Shop in Baldwin. Don't forget about the Coffee Talk. Don't forget about the Coffee Talk uh, giveaway, Coffee Talk Challenge, whatever you want to call it. Uh, English Coffee right now. If you go to wetflyswing.com slash coffee talk, you're going to get a chance to get some free coffee sent to you uh, today. Joe's going to be giving away five five packs per month, so it's a good chance to get your name in the head. And once you get in there, we're going to just keep drawing, drawing uh, pats out of the out of the hopper. So uh, check it out right now. Get your name in there, and you get a chance to taste some of that delicious English coffee. Okay, time to get out of here. We are, uh, where are we at right now? We're, we're kind of getting that point where we got so much, so many episodes going on. I feel like it's almost time to take a break. Maybe take a little break. What do you think? Would you be disappointed if we took a week off? We haven't taken a week off since 2017. So right now it is 2022. And I would be curious to hear what you think. Would you be disappointed if I just came back and next week... After this episode, there was not um, a new episode, and we just took a break and just, and just, uh, it's that deep breath, right? Deep breath, one week off. All right, let me know. I, I might, uh, I might do that, and I might not. But uh, 
Uh, and I say that because we are uh, kind of uh, in the middle in the middle of summer, and it's real busy. And uh, and to be honest with you, to keep this content wagon uh, rolling, um, it's it's not an easy thing. So um, so let me know what you think. If you have an opinion there, I'd love to hear from you, Dave at Wetfly Swing, or on social media. Let me know if uh, if you enjoy uh, the two full length episodes a week, um, or. Or if you'd like us to take a break, if that's cool. Or maybe if you could handle uh, even more than two. I've talked about this before, a daily podcast episode. Is that is that possible? A daily podcast interview. All right, let's do it. Let's get out of here. Let's get on the river. I look forward to uh, seeing you. I hope uh, you have a good afternoon, a good evening, or a good morning, wherever you are. I hope to see you on the water or maybe catch up with you on email online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.